But we start with trivia night at the St. James's Well Irish Pub in Port Moody. It happened at the regular tacos and trivia night in the popular neighborhood pub. 50 people in the pub playing trivia. 15 tested positive for COVID. Okay, this incident specifically called out by Dr. Bonnie Henry this week. Have a listen. We know a, a games night where there was 50 people in an establishment that should not have been having a games night. And that 15 people from that, um, that event, which um, is against orders, uh, became infected and spread to several workplaces, to schools, and to a child care centre. All right, Dr. Bonnie Henry, earlier this week, the pub should not have been having a games night, as she said there in that clip. Okay, so you can go into a pub. Let's see if we get this straight. You can go into the pub, you can sit down, you can have a pint, but you can't play a trivia game while you're sitting there. Let's see if we can figure this out. My guest is Jeff Guinard. He's the executive director of Able BC. They represent the pubs and bars in British Columbia. Very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Jeff, thanks for coming on. My pleasure, Mike. Okay, so what's the deal with the rules on this? Was this pub breaking the rules, to your knowledge? Yeah, so the best of my knowledge, not really. It's it's quite confusing for industry, right? Because we're operating under the most stringent public health protocols ever put out in this province. And so there's documents that we get from the provincial government detailing what we can and can't do. And we're totally on side following those, which is why in January there was no cases coming from our industry, right? Because we've been very successful at having the right policies in place to keep people safe. When it comes to trivia, you're not really allowed to host events, right? So any sort of special thing you would do to bring people in, and they don't really want you doing games or quizzes or pool or things that increase touch points. But you're also, the rule is for us, we're not allowed to have patrons standing in bars right. and pubs. So if you're sitting at your table and the person is sitting down you know, with a microphone kind of talking out the trivia questions with you, uh, there should be no risk from that sort of a situation where the problem comes in uh, in sorts of cases like this, when patrons decide the rules don't follow them, right? So you come in with your group, uh, and then perhaps you, you know, you're asymptomatic. You don't even know you're infected by it, um, which is why you have to follow the rules. Because then you go off and decide to see, to see somebody at the table next door. All of a sudden, you've infected six people at that table. So instead of having a small wound exposure, we've now got six, 12 people, right? And then you maybe say hi to someone on the way back from the washroom, and then they sit at their table and we've infected another three, right? Which is why it's so important to follow the rules so we can keep you safe out there. Now, does this come down to the government's definition of an event? Like, obviously, the pubs are allowed to open, but you are not allowed to hold what the government defines as an event. So, yeah, there's some I, confusion about it, honestly. Like, yeah. we're not trying to host anything that you would think of as an event, um, I mean, like things that special parties for Super Bowl or St. Patrick's Day, those are obviously on side. Um, but the definition of event is quite broad, right? It's anything that gathers people together on a one-time or recurring basis. Well, that's sort of the purpose of a pub, right? <laughs> to have to go out with a few folks. Um, so folks well, are having a hard time finding that exact line. Sometimes. Okay, well, I'm looking at a statement for, that the government issued yesterday, and it says, quote, promoting or advertising a single event that brings people together during a specific time frame is not allowed. So, mm -hmm. you know, then you go to the website of the St. James's Well pub in Port Moody, and it, it's still up there on their website, Tacos and Trivia, every Tuesday, yeah. 7 p.m., $4 tacos, featured beers, 
hosted by Michael Finnegan. Good Irish mm-hmm. name there. Pr- <laughs> prizes, prizes, and more. I mean, that sounds like a super fun night, and I'm not surprised they got 50 people out. I mean, does that not break the rules if it's if you got an, an, a poster like that up on your website? Well, here's the thing. I mean, we're working with government, obviously, at our provincial health office to find out exactly what they're willing for, or to have industry do or not do. And, of course, we'll have their back on that. But they've also said that while there's certain things that are obviously an event, if you're doing special promotions for them, uh, if you have a regular weekly wing night special or taco special, that is not an event. That's just part of your normal business. That's the same thing as a, a retail store advertising or a grocery store promoting something. It's just a core function of what you do. Right. And, you know, the thing right. about 50 people, I'll say, you know, that pub has a much larger capacity than that, but it's had to make concession to that capacity to have the right COVID protocol. So it wasn't, it wasn't like they were overcrowded, like it's 50 people no. within the protocols? Yeah. Okay. Regardless of what you have, whether you have something up on your website about it um you can imagine a sports bar putting up the fact that they're having a you know monday night football is being played on on, on television um they uh, at the end of the day they, they only have a certain number of people who get into the, the establishment they have you know, tables that are two meters apart they're stopping patrons from mingling between tables you know, the groups are no more than six i think the couple of things to remember about this i mean this is an inevitable consequence of the universe we live in right now people do get exposed yeah. um, but even in this case it was started off as a low exposure risk but this happens so rarely in the hospitality industry that we're literally doing news stories about it, right? And now there's confusion about whether or not what they did was entirely on side, but they've not been fined for anything. Uh, this is just an unfortunate outcome for a, a pandemic reality. Oh, okay, well, you anticipated my next question there. Is there any kind of investigation into this? Is, is the pub shut down? Have they been fined? So the pub is closed down out of an abundance of caution so they can fully sanitize and sterilize the place, right? Because they want to make sure that any traces of the virus that someone had brought in with them is gone. Uh, there's no need for additional protocols. The protocols we have in place work, despite the fact yeah. that some folks didn't follow the rules this time and spread it, which is which is why staff ask you to wear a mask and they're asking you to sit down if you happen to be standing up. So please just, just follow the rules. Well, that can be a problem, though. Is that tough for the pubs, though? I mean, if people are supposed to stay in their seats, if you get people get up out of their seats and walk over to another table, I guess the pub is, what, supposed to go in and tell them to sit down? Yeah, I mean, don't feel bad for us. It's our job to try and, you know, to keep <laughs> you safe in those environments. Um, but I will say it does make it a lot more difficult if you think the rules don't apply to you and you decide that you're going to mingle. And what we'll do in those cases is tell you once, and then we're going to have to ask you to leave after that, because what ends up happening is when a patron doesn't follow the rules and ends up mingling between groups, for example, we can suddenly have a COVID exposure case that becomes, instead of just a small isolated situation that was probably you and your family that was going to happen anyway, uh, turns it into we suddenly have 15 people infected by something, right? So we need you to follow those rules. Uh, and it puts a lot of pressure on staff, but you know, this is not our first rodeo. We're 11 months into this pandemic now, and we've okay. been working with these protocols for a long time. Okay, we asked, uh, we tried to get the Saint, someone from the St. James's Well pub in Port Moody to come on today, and uh, we're, not, we're not successful doing that. But I understand that they're planning to reopen today. Mm-hmm. Is that your understanding? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, they've cleaned the place and uh, they're ready to go. And they, like I said, they, they were not ordered to shut down. They did it under an right. abundance of caution because they want to keep their employees safe as well, right? And what, what, about, what about Taco and Tuesday, Taco and Trivia Tuesday this Tuesday? Is that on? Well, I, I don't know what they're going to do for this Tuesday. Well, I imagine that uh, they're going to be looking for on that. I would, I would recommend that they don't until we get yeah. this sorted out. But we'll be chatting with the provincial health officer to get some clarity. Uh, trivia is not currently listed in their orders. And if they're going to ban it, uh, officially it needs to be put on there because we, we're, we're in an industry that happily follows the rules. We just need to know what the rules are. Jeff, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Have a great day. All right. Welcome back to the show. You heard my conversation there with Jeff Guinard from Able BC representing bars and pubs. And we're talking about the trivia night that happened at the St. James's Wells Irish pub. 
and Port Moody. They're still advertising their tacos and trivia Tuesday night uh, thing on uh, their their website right now. Just taking a look at it right now. Let's check in now with Al Johnson, head of prevention services for WorkSafe BC. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Al, thank you for coming on. Good morning, Mike. Thanks a lot for doing this. Are you guys investigating this pub in Port Moody that had the trivia night? There's a number of people really investigating, and we're part of that. We're attuned to uh, what is being done there. And, uh, you know, again, this just shows you what can happen when things go sideways. We want employers to make sure they have COVID safety plans that are tight. We want to make sure they're being followed. We want to make sure they're engaging their workers and their customers and patrons to keep everybody safe. And when things like this happen, we need to learn what went wrong so that we can apply it to all the other uh, bars and pubs and restaurants and work locations around the province. Okay, but they have not been fined or shut down or anything at this point. In fact, in fact, they say they're reopening today. I not not by WorkSafe BC. I don't know all of the other agencies or groups that are working with them. Right. Okay. Um, but I don't have any of that information right now. Right. So there could be multiple agencies investigate these type of things. Absolutely, right. there could be. At WorkSafe BC, as you well know, Mike, we are focused on worker health and safety. That is our mandate, and of course, public health, and uh, uh, they're very much involved with the public uh, safety. Um, but when it comes to restaurants and bars, there are a number of other groups involved, everything from bylaw to a liquor control board. So uh, a lot of different agencies could be involved at different times. Okay, generally speaking, when it comes to restaurants and pubs specifically, and we've seen this outbreak at this particular pub, uh, what are the most important rules that these establishments must follow and that, you know, you have the greatest concern about and, and making sure that the rules are followed? Yeah, you know, it really comes back to the fundamentals, Mike, that we've been talking about from day one with this particular uh, this particular COVID risk in the workplace. And those fundamentals are distancing, maintaining distance, keeping proximity between workers, between workers and public, um, certainly taking the precautions and putting in uh, uh, precautionary measures, PPE, barriers, that sort of thing. Cleanliness is big, and we continue to focus on cleanliness. Those are the big factors. And proximity to people. And when it comes to uh, uh, places where workers interact with the public, it's about traffic flow, if you will, or or managing the flow of people in your facility, managing the number of people in your facility at a time. Yeah. We're currently really fo- focused hard on uh, urging employers to revisit their plans uh, as these right. conditions change and to stay true to their plans, stay on top of their plans, don't get fatigued, keep their workers engaged, and uh, keep COVID-19 safety a priority that it needs to be right now. And uh, that's really our message. And we've been out to a lot of places doing a lot of inspections. And uh, that's what we're trying to push very hard. Right. What about a pub that holds a weekly tacos and trivia every Tuesday night with uh, $4 tacos and prizes for the trivia game? Is, is that is that allowed? Because it sounds to me like the, the government's suggesting that, that this is where the, the rules were broken. In, in the government's perspective, that's an, a banned event to have a taco night every week. Yeah, and again, WorkSafe BC, we're not in the business of, of telling uh, any employer how to run their business per se. Yeah. If they do run it, they need to run it safely. And so if conditions change, if they have 
more people than anticipated in their facility or more people lined up to get into their facility, then they need to be attuned to what needs to to change with respect to their COVID safety plan to make sure that everyone stays safe. So I know that uh, public health has weighed in on numbers of, of patrons in a, uh, in, a, in a given space. They have some uh, direction around that. I know that there are also some, uh, there's been some direction around uh, advertising and, and trying to uh, encourage groups gathering together. Um, if they do, it needs to be done safely. We would hope it's not being done, but again, uh, where those groups might come into play that way, then absolutely the regulations don't change, the requirements of WorkSafe BC don't change, and that's about COVID safety plans being effective speaking to al johnson from WorkSafe bc can you tell me how what kind of enforcement action you guys have taken to date like have any workplaces been shut down have many of them been fined we have we have i don't have the number of fines or closures off the top of my head mike we have done some uh but but by by far uh, our focus has been on uh doing a lot of inspections and uh if i go back over the last few weeks we did a blitz up in whistler over the weekend a few weeks oh. ago at the end of january we yeah. uh, then did a lot of inspectional work uh, over 230 inspections leading up to super bowl sunday and in fact we had prevention officers out to restaurants and sports bars on super bowl Sunday, uh, over 100 were inspected that day. And just last week alone, again, we did over 200 inspections focused on COVID-19, uh, specifically in various workplaces, predominantly focused in the last little while on accommodation and food and leisure type activities, restaurants and bars. We are writing orders and um, those orders are violations where improvements need to be made. We then follow up on those orders to make sure those COVID safety plans are staying true and staying uh, staying in, on top and staying as they should be. Okay, there's a lot of concerns about the situation in Whistler. What did your inspections un- uncover up there? We uh, we found that uh, about 35 of the 230 or so inspections we did, 35 of the employers needed to make some improvements to their COVID safety plans. Now, we were focused primarily there on uh, retail sector, so uh, a lot of uh, uh, stores, if you will. Uh, We visited liquor stores, we visited hardware stores, that type of thing. Um, uh, Certainly, our, our, our inspection uh, officers, our officers found that uh, they needed to make some improvements in certain areas and those employers were willing to do that. They uh, they certainly did not, uh, in some cases they were unaware that they should make some improvements and, and, and they were very much appreciative of how they could improve their COVID plans but in other cases uh, they, they just needed to uh, again pay greater attention to what they already knew and to ensure that they were engaging their workers and keeping everybody engaged and, and working the plan sort of speak thank you for your time today i really appreciate it my pleasure mike anytime all right welcome back to the show we talk about the latest in metro's gang war now the latest targeted hit tuesday night in surrey one man found shot on the street he survived the shooting police called it a targeted hit it's just the latest spasm of violence here in the ongoing metro vancouver gang war let's discuss now with my guest bc's best crime reporter kim boland from the vancouver sun and it's always great to have her on kim thanks for coming on my pleasure, Mike. Okay, so let's talk about um, Tuesday night, 10, 15 p.m., uh, neighbors reporting shots of gunfire on, on the streets of Surrey. One man, one man shot, but he survived. We don't know, the, do we know the identity of, of this person? 
No, we don't. We do yeah. know that he's 21 years old and linked to the Lower Mainland gang conflict. So lucky to be alive. He's, of course, not cooperating with police. And I think what was particularly shocking about this uh, shooting was that uh, he was going down a residential street. He pulled into a driveway of a house that was not his house. And then mm-hmm. these other guys uh, stop a vehicle and start blasting. So, you know, the risk to the public and the people in that house was really serious and, you know, astonishing, quite frankly. Um, you know, so these guys, we know they have no regard for public safety, but to actually go onto a property that's not yours and put the people in that home at risk is, to me, a different level. Oh, I agree with you. It's really shocking. And there was some uh, security camera video on Global News last night that was just wild. I mean, you just see the muzzle blast coming from this handgun. This guy just unloading this weapon. And so, yeah, I mean, lucky that uh, no one was, uh, no innocent people were caught in the crossfire there. What are your, the police, you know, it's interesting that we don't know the identity of the person who was shot, but like, are you hearing anything from your sources about what this is about? This is another, another part of the, just a gang war, right? It's part of the same conflict, right? And I mean, sometimes, you know, these are very pragmatic shootings, if you will, in gangland where they really want to stop someone who's moving into their territory or they want to expand their territory into the other person's territory. And sometimes there's, you know, a, a variety of reasons, like maybe there's a personal beef or dispute, or it's a direct retaliation for another shooting that's happened earlier. So there's often, you know, several different reasons why they're going after a particular person, but the methods that they're using to track each other, it's pretty amazing. I think I reported earlier this week about, um, you know, sometimes they're posing as police officers right now. You know, I mean, two weeks ago, a car with a police light on top was pulling over other vehicles in Langley. This is this is amazing to me, and I really encourage people to check out your story on this one, Kim. And I'm just looking at it right now, and and the lead is uh, earlier this month, occupants of a car with flashing red and blue police lights started pulling over vehicles in Langley. This was not your average roadblock. Police allege the people inside the fake police car were participants in the Lower Mainland gang conflict. I mean, that's incredible. So, like, what you know, uh, the mind just reels here at something like this. Like, you could be pulling over people posing as cops, but what? They're looking for one of their targets, maybe, to take them out. Definitely, they were looking for their targets. They, you know, probably had some intelligence that someone was in the area. But, I mean, again, the public risk is, is really startling. What if... You know, someone who had been pulled over by these fake cops had started to ask some questions. Wait a minute, you know, what's this about? You don't look real or whatever. Could someone have been shot, oh, right? right, yeah. Um, and then the other thing, obviously, police are really worried because, you know, if there are fake cops circulating out there who are really gangsters, what does that do when a real police officer pulls someone over? Are the people going to be suspicious that it's their rival and start blasting? So, it puts police officers at more risk than usual, if you will. Okay, is this a disturbing trend for sure? Because we all, people will also remember that 78-year-old Usha Singh, that the woman who was found uh, severely injured in her home and later died, the two suspects charged with that home invasion uh, killing there, uh, also allegedly po- posing as cops, right? Yeah, that's right. That's how yeah. they apparently got into the house. You know, you do see, I did sort of go to all the different uh, police agencies in the region and ask for information about this. And uh, many instances of people uh, posing as police officers are, you know, to do fraud or to, you know, get an item from someone. They're not usually violent crimes. 
So it's quite new, though, to have it associated with the gang conflict. Okay, Kim, I, I'm speaking to Kim Boland from the Vancouver Sun. I, I follow you on Twitter, which I encourage people to do. I was really struck uh, by a photo you posted the other day of homicide victim uh, Adrian Golafit from Surrey, 31 years old. Just looks like this very nice guy in, in the photo uh, found dead. This is a mysterious one, right? Like people are trying to figure out why this guy was killed. Yeah, certainly he's not someone that has any history with police. He's not known uh, to them at all, doesn't uh, have any known gang associations, a very friendly guy. People seem to love him. His you know, former high school mates posted like just a very moving tribute, and apparently they had all kept in touch, a large group of them, for over a decade. And uh, this was the guy that you went to if you were feeling down, and he cheered you up. And, you know, so really tragic shooting. Um, and, and the one before that, a fellow named Neil Pratap, 44, who was uh, shot to death in Burnaby, was not really known to police for any kind of gang affiliation, right? So both are mysterious. Uh, you know, I do think police will get to the bottom of them. You know, unfortunately, sometimes someone might enter a home looking for someone else. They may have the wrong yeah. address or they may have seen that person visit that home for some other reason. You know, so you may find there is some kind of nexus down the road to the gang conflict. Um, you know, the uh, shooting of a nurse a couple of years ago in Surrey, um, you know, was mistaken yeah. identity. And, right. you know, my information is they were looking for a gang rival, but they turned the wrong way on the street, counted the houses in the wrong direction and shot this nurse hockey coach well loved yes. in his community. So, you know, unfortunately, we have seen mistaken identity cases that, you know, are technically linked to the gang conflict. They just shot the wrong person, right? So, um, but yeah, it's obviously much easier for police to figure out what's going on, who the possible suspects are, when they know that the target is someone who's been involved in this conflict, right? This will take longer to sort out, inevitably, but I do think they'll get to the bottom of both of these recent murders. Just a few minutes left here, Cam. It's interesting to see the federal government uh, bringing in that enabling legislation this week that would allow municipalities to ban handguns within their borders. And we quickly saw uptake here on that idea from Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart, also Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum, uh, both saying they were were anxious for a gun ban in the cities of Vancouver and Surrey. Uh, When you talk Talk to like police officers. Uh, how do they generally feel about the idea of a handgun ban? Like, uh, do most cops support that idea? Because I don't know. I'd, I'd sense that there's some there's some division in on that. Well, I just don't think you know they see how it can make any difference in what's going on right now. You know, there's already limited circumstances under which police can pull someone over. And in fact, that's becoming more limited, understandably, because civil liberties groups are concerned about, you know, unfair targeting of uh, people, potentially racialized people. You know, so how are they going to find these handguns? You know, I mean, people aren't going to have a bumper sticker on the car. I have a handgun in the vehicle. Right. So, you know, what does it really do? These will, you know, the the guns that are being used uh, to shoot people in public areas are not legally owned firearms, right? Right, right. So, you know, I really don't see how this puts a dent in the gang violence. However, you know, it, it signals that government is concerned about this issue. And, you know, maybe there are other solutions that they'll come up with. But, you know, sometimes, like having covered this for years, every time there's an outburst of violence, you see politicians coming up with, you know, simplistic solutions, quite frankly, 
you know, and then when things seem quiet again, no one's talking about it, right? And sometimes yeah. funding goes away for pro, for, from programs, right, that uh, were put in place at the height of the violence. And really what you need is a consistent, ongoing financing of all, a range of things to tackle gang violence from, you know, education in schools, programs to help people exit, um, yeah. you know, to maybe tougher legislation, we used right. to have uh, mandatory minimums uh, for uh, certain firearms charges, and that was struck down by the Supreme Court of Canada, right? So, um, you know, they are saying that there'd be, you know, stricter or longer penalties for some, like um, smuggling firearms, for example, right. or trafficking firearms. But again, those are not mandatory minimums. Okay. You know, they're uh, available penalties, and, you know, judges obviously are not going to likely impose the maximum penalties in those Kim. cases. Kim, it's always great to have you on here. Thanks. Uh, continue the great work, and thank you for coming on. Anytime, Mike. All right. Welcome back to the show. By 1 o'clock this afternoon, we'll know whether or not the new NASA rover named Perseverance will have successfully landed on Mars. Our show contributor, John Jang, now explains why this mission matters and what new gadgets this rover is bringing to the Red Planet. John. Space. The final frontier. Space exploration has come a long way since those famous and iconic words were first spoken on Star Trek back in 1966. In fact, later today, NASA's Perseverance rover will finally land on the surface of Mars, almost seven months after it originally launched from Earth in July of last year. It's the first NASA rover to land on the Red Planet since Curiosity first touched down on August of 2012. And with a brand new rover comes brand new equipment for a brand new mission. Here's the team from NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab to explain. You know, Mars is the closest place that we can reach with robotic exploration that we think had a really good chance of having ancient life. The Perseverance rover will land at a location called Jezero Crater. Jezero Crater is a very interesting place. It's a crater that once held a lake. There are a lot of craters on the surface of Mars that could have once hosted ancient lakes, but not every crater that we think had a lake actually preserves evidence that that lake was there. It had an inflow channel and it had an outflow channel. That means it was filled, the crater was filled with water. In Jezero, we have probably one of the most beautifully preserved delta deposits on Mars in that crater. This is a wonderful place to live for microorganisms, and it is also a wonderful place for those microorganisms to be preserved so that we can find them now so many billions of years later. There is no other place on Mars that has the unique combination of a lake setting, a beautifully preserved delta, and the diverse mineralogy that we have in Jezero Crater. So it's truly a special landing site. The major goal of the Perseverance mission is to investigate astrobiology on Mars, and in particular, to address the question of whether life ever existed on Mars. The Perseverance rover starts with a design that's very similar to Curiosity, but we've added to it a whole new set of science instruments. And these science instruments were purposefully selected to help us in the search for biosignatures. We're gonna be taking uh, microphones with us for the first time we're going to have uh, that human sense on another planet. Perseverance carries with her a grand experiment in space-faring technology, a helicopter, the name of which is now Ingenuity. 
One of the major upgrades that Perseverance has from Curiosity is that it's able to self-drive for a distance of up to 200 meters per day. As the rover is driving, it's literally building the map of the road it's driving on on Mars. Scientists for years have told us that to really unlock the secrets of Mars, we have to bring samples from Mars back to Earth. So what Mars 2020 is going to do is to drill samples, put them in small tubes. We're going to seal it in its own individual tube. We set them on the surface to provide a target for the second two missions, which hopefully will get in development in the next several years and could potentially get the samples back to Earth by 2031. Perseverance is a very, very profound first step in both our understanding of our place in the universe and a stepping stone towards human exploration on Mars. Now, nothing in life is ever guaranteed, and even at this moment, just hours away from the surface of Mars, there's a million things that could go wrong. But, assuming that Perseverance can at least enter the Martian atmosphere, the rover and its landing craft will enter one of the most crucial stages of this entire six-and-a-half-month journey. Former NASA engineer and current YouTube personality Mark Rober can explain. And it will keep on that trajectory until the big moment on Thursday when it starts its entry, descent, and landing, or EDL. It's also known as the seven minutes of tear because we've literally got seven minutes to get from the top of the atmosphere to the surface of Mars, going from 13,000 miles per hour to zero in perfect sequence and perfect timing, and the spacecraft has to do it all on its own with no help from us on Earth. When it first hits the upper atmosphere, the friction causes the heat shield to start glowing like the surface of the sun, all the while thrusters are firing to steer and adjust its course towards the target location. And that aero braking gets rid of 99% of the energy, so for the last 1%, we deploy a supersonic parachute. Then we've got to pop off the heat shield we no longer need, like removing a lens cap, so the radar can start viewing the ground. But even with the parachute, it's still traveling 200 miles per hour, which is way too fast to land. And so that's where we cut loose of the back shell and fire the rockets. But we can't quite land in this configuration because the rockets will kick up too much debris and damage the rover. So then we lower it from a 21-foot rope and gently land the rover on the surface as my sky crane zooms off to face an honorable, catastrophic ending as far away from the rover as its remaining fuel will carry it. And so in just seven minutes, the spacecraft has completely metamorphosized, shedding all its sacrificial elements until you're left with just a rover sitting alone, safely on the surface of Mars. From a drone-like helicopter that will act as a scouting tool for the rover on Mars, to the addition of microphones and self-driving navigational tools, Perseverance will allow scientists to have a better understanding of what a future colony on that planet could one day look like. And of course, to get closer to an answer of whether or not there's real forms of life elsewhere in the solar system. For those interested in the seven minutes of terror and whether or not the mission will be a success, NASA will live stream the Perseverance rover landing starting at 11.30 this morning. All right. Nice job, John. John Jang joins me now. Hey, John, I, I love this stuff, especially the <laughs> Mars rover landings. I just think it's so amazing, so cool. And I love watching the landings because you see these NASA engineers just, you know, holding their breath. They've worked years on this thing and then they got the seven minutes of terror. Exactly. It's the it's the most dramatic footage when they get to show you what it's like inside that NASA control room and all yeah. those people who have worked so hard. Like this is their entire life work yeah. and they have to wait seven minutes. And the most important thing here, too, they can't do a thing. This no, is all an automated all automatic, process. So right. you, you, all you can do is witness what is such a high tension and emotion. Okay, you're going to watch it? Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll I figured you would. <laughs> okay. okay, thank you, John.
All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about China's human rights record now. This is a hot political issue in Canada at the moment. There are increasing calls for Canada to take action against China for its human rights abuses, whether it's China's arrest of the two Michaels, those two Canadians still detained in China, or China's treatment of its Muslim population, notably the Uyghurs. Have a listen to this. This is Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole on a conservative motion to recognize China's actions as genocide. Have a listen to the conservative leader here. Silence only helps those who commit crimes against humanity, never the victims. Today, Canada's conservatives are calling on the Parliament of Canada to recognize that genocide is currently being carried out by the People's Republic of China against Uyghurs and other Turkic Muslims. We are calling on Prime Minister Trudeau to officially adopt this position. We are calling for an end to silence. Canada may be a small country in terms of our population, but we are a towering giant when it comes to our commitment to defend human rights and dignity. And right now, over a million people, half a world away, need us to do just that. Okay, Conservative Leader Aaron O'Toole speaking earlier today. Let's discuss now with my guest, Garnet Jenis. He is a Conservative MP for in Saskatchewan. He is the official opposition critic for international development and human rights. And I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Hi, thanks a lot for coming on. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for devoting time to this important issue. You bet. Thank you. Can you expand a bit on this motion, and what is, what is the purpose of this motion? So the motion is a, is a simple motion that would uh, amount to Canada's parliament declaring, recognizing uh, that the government of China has been and is in an ongoing way committing genocide against Uyghurs and other Turkic Muslims in China. Canada is a, a party to the International Genocide Convention, uh, and we have obligations under that uh, to protect vulnerable populations who are victims of genocide uh, to, to deter and prevent these actions. Uh, so we are we are trying to take this important step of genocide recognition uh, that would then require us to take the steps we can uh, to to prevent and uh, the, the abuse of this population. Of course, China denies this. Uh, what is, what is the main the main evidence against China for genocide? Well, the evidence is overwhelming. Uh, we have satellite imagery. We have. Uh, survivor testimony, and we have uh, leaked or otherwise published Chinese government data. The primary mechanism of this genocide is the prevention of births within the group, and that's one of the uh, categories in which a genocide can be identified, where essentially a government tries to eradicate a population by preventing uh, people within that population from having any more children. We see a system of forced abortion, forced sterilization, forced insertion of IUDs. Uh, that is the wow. testimony of survivors, systemic sexual violence inside and outside of concentration camps that are in Xinjiang. Uh, and we see this in the data, a precipitous drop in the birth rates in these areas following the introduction of these policies. So you have essentially lining up the, the satellite image, images of these concentration camps, the testimonies of survivors to these just horrific systems of sexual violence uh, and uh, and, and also you have the, the data in terms of birth rates. The Chinese government doesn't really deny the impact of these policies. In fact, there was a tweet from the, uh, the Chinese embassy in Washington uh, that, that was saying, oh, well, through, through our efforts at re-education, Uyghur women are no longer baby-making machines. Uh, so there's, wow. there's an acknowledgement of this precipitous decline in population, uh, and it, it's clearly resulting from the 
the systemic efforts of the government to prevent births within the group. There's 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 other ways in which the the, the, the actions of the government of China likely uh, cross the threshold in that convention. But that is, I think, the clearest one. Yeah, that's that's a really powerful one, I think, for sure. And and also, you mentioned the the, the concentration camps, which, which the Chinese government refers to as like re-education centers. Um, you know, the scale of that, I, I find astonishing. And, and speaking of satellite images, I mean, you know, you've got images of over a thousand of, of these things being built in China, evidence of more than a million people being diverted into these facilities. I mean, what's your what's your analysis of that? Yes. Yeah, so uh, as part of the evidence, the subcommittee on international human rights heard on these issues. Uh, evidence which led to a, a unanimous declaration across all parties that were represented on that committee uh, that this constituted a genocide. Uh, we had one expert who, who, who said that this is, quote, the largest mass detention of a minority community since the Holocaust. And that's, you know, that's, that's very powerful. Uh, and, and unlike in the Holocaust, we can actually see what's going on in real time. Uh, there, were, there were many aspects of the Holocaust that, of course, didn't come uh, to light, at least for those of us who were further away until, until afterwards. Uh, but here we, we can see those concentration camps being built, what they call re-education facilities. No, no education facility uh, needs to be surrounded by barbed wire. Uh, it's, it's very obvious from a distance what, what is happening. And again, we have the, the survivor testimony, just horrific stories. Cases, for instance, of, of mass rape where other prisoners were lined up to, and forced to, to watch these events happening. Uh, this is what the government of China is doing as we speak, and, and, and all of us have to do all we can to stop it. All right, I'm speaking to Conservative MP Garnet Janis, he's the official opposition critic for human rights and international development. Uh, we did reach out to the Justin Trudeau Liberal government to try and get a government representative uh, to appear on the show today to discuss this, and no one uh, was made available for us. Uh, let me play this here for you, though. This is uh, Justin Trudeau, and earlier this week, uh, he was asked about Canada's or China's treatment of its Uyghur minority and asked whether it constituted a genocide. And you're going to hear a little artful dodging here, but have a, have a little, uh, listen carefully to what Trudeau says here, Justin Trudeau. Uh, there is no question that there have been tremendous uh, human, rights, human rights abuses reported uh, coming out of Xinjiang, uh, and we are extremely concerned of that and have highlighted our concerns many times. But when it comes to the application of the very specific word genocide, uh, we simply need to ensure uh, that all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed in the processes uh, before a determination like that is made. Okay, is he not stating a, a simple truth there, that before you apply this label to, to any country, you better make sure that it's accurate, right? Like, basically, that's what he's saying, that they need more, that he needs more evidence, he needs more research. I mean, how do you interpret his remarks, sir? So I, I agree with what you're saying, which is that it's important to ensure that the evidence is in place. Uh, I do not agree with his suggestion that the evidence is not in place already. And, and you know, I, I want to be as nonpartisan on this as possible. We certainly have Liberal MPs, and one just spoke in the House of Commons, who agree with our motion, yes. who recognize the evidence. Uh, you know, again, satellite imagery, survivor testimony, the Chinese government's own data. What the Prime Minister has said in other contexts is that, well, what they want to do is is they're asking to be able to do an on-the-ground investigation, as if it's realistic that China would, would have sort of a guided tour of concentration camps so that our investigators could figure out. I mean, that's, that's nonsense. The, the evidence is just so overwhelming. And I, and I put it to the Prime Minister previously. If, if you can see through your window that a violent crime is happening in your neighbor's house, 
Are you going to knock on the door and kind of wait for somebody to answer? Or are you going to identify the evidence you can see with your own eyes? Uh, there's something else going on here. It's, it's really hard to explain the prime minister's refusal to recognize this. Uh, but, but he's uh, offside with the experts and he's offside with many even of his own MPs and certainly right. all three of the opposition parties. Well, four, if you count the Greens, all opposition parties uh, are going to be supporting this motion. Okay, the motion in front of the House of Commons is to declare a genocide by, by China. What would be, if that is passed and endorsed by the House of Commons, would that have any, any practical or actual, actual impact? Like, would it trigger sanctions against China or anything, or would it simply just be a, a symbolic statement? I mean, what would be the impact of it or the effect? Well, there's a few different effects that are very important. Number one, I think it triggers a a similar response from other countries around the world. We've already seen uh, the Biden administration take the step of recognizing the genocide. Uh, If the Americans, the Canadians, I know there's work being done in the UK and many other countries. So hopefully this will be part of a building uh, groundswell of response around the world. Uh, We are a a signatory to the Genocide Convention, which gives us obligations to, to act. Uh, to protect vulnerable populations when genocide is going on. Uh, so what that, that could mean a, a, a range of things. Uh, the subcommittee in its statement called for the use of Magnitsky sanctions, targeted sanctions right. against individuals who are involved in these, uh, these acts. We also need significant reform in terms of our supply chain, and Canada's a real laggard here. Uh, we're not doing enough to ensure we aren't importing products that are made from, uh, from slave labor. 20% of the world's cotton comes from Xinjiang, where these concentration camps are, and there's significant evidence of uh, Uyghurs being, being forced into, into slave labor to produce products for foreign markets. So reforms to our supply chain, Magnitsky sanctions, actions by other countries, and, and we've also uh, joined with other parties in calling for the Olympics to be relocated. So right. uh, those okay. are a number of, of important steps we can take in response. Okay, speaking of the Olympics, real quickly, let me let me play another clip here from uh, Aaron O'Toole, the Conservative leader, who also this week called for the Olympic, the 2022 Olympic Games, and scheduled for Beijing to be moved out of China. Here's O'Toole. Today, I call on Prime Minister Trudeau to actively seek the relocation of the 2022 Olympic Games. Canada should not be sending athletes to China in the middle of a genocide. Okay, so if, they, if the games remain in China, you, the Conservatives are saying that Canada should boycott the games? Is that right? Well, our, uh, the, the first step is trying to seek a, a, a relocation. But I think our leader was very clear that Canada should not be sending athletes to China in the middle of a genocide. Uh, we know the history of sporting boycotts, you know, positive and negative. 1936 Olympics in Berlin was a negative example where the world failed to act, and this was a big sort of propaganda victory for the Nazis. Uh, on the positive side, during apartheid, we had successful uh, sporting boycotts uh, running throughout the world, and they had a significant impact on the, on the fall of apartheid. So uh, we can see how uh, a, a, a little bit of short-term pain in terms of the Olympics is, is uh, the right thing to do. Uh, the long-term impact of it in terms of human rights can be very significant. Nobody looks back at the, at the, uh, the sporting boycotts against apartheid South Africa and says, oh man, too bad we've ruined some rugby careers. Uh, it's just not on the same scale. When is it, just last question for you, when is the vote on this motion, the genocide motion in the House? So the debate will go all day today, and then the vote will be deferred until Monday after question period. So that okay. will be around noon uh, Vancouver time. Okay, we're following that closely. Thank you for coming on today. My pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity.